0: welcome to the south fellowship podcast here at south fellowship we exist to help people live in the way of jesus with the heart of jesus and wherever you're listening from today we hope you're encouraged by this week's message hello good morning morning. how you doing friends my name's Alex I'm one of the pastors here if you're visiting it's really great to see you delighted that you're here uh, I'm just this is just a complaint so just take it for what it is uh my wife and kids just deserted me for the week they're off in Michigan you know and, and someone actually said to me in the first service what are you complaining about like that's my dream being left <laughs> alone in my house by myself like just just take that for the goodness it is but I'm I'm, I'm very extrovert so I have to spend a lot of time by myself now, which is just as terrible as you you might think. Um, But on the plus side, I did get to go uh, to hang out in Vale for a day just uh, and get some skiing in. Uh, And I went with a guy um, who comes to South who shall remain nameless, but his name's JD. Uh, And he's got this (laughs) reputation That, that every time I say I'm going with him, my wife will text me. She's like, please don't die. Um, because, you know, he just, he, he just, yeah, there's some stuff. So this is us on the edge of this cornice. That's like a 20 foot just drop into just like this, this mess of snow. I, I stood on the side and whacked my pole against it a few times just to show it who was boss. But uh, other than that, I then skied around it and the, the safe route. But, but the, the fun part was as we're on the next chair, we're looking back uh, and he turns around and he goes, oh, look, there's our cornice over there. Uh, and the guy we were he looks at me and says, don't call it our cornice. It was your cornice. You were the idiot that took us up there. Like we, we, we were no part of that. And we, we decided there was no forgiveness for leading us up there. And yet, when we get to today's sermon, maybe we have to forgive him because today we get to talk about forgiveness and I'm always aware whenever we open up this kind of thing it stirs up all kinds of emotions there are lots of like maybe triggers maybe instantly when I talk about forgiveness and and let me specify forgiveness towards other people not forgiveness from God there's maybe a person that already floats into like view for you there's there's maybe a, a a time in your life that instantly comes back maybe there's a house that you still don't drive past a business that you still don't do business with because it can stir up all sorts of different things when we start talking about forgiveness and yeah it's something that Jesus comes back to time and time again so if you have a text if you want to open it we're in Matthew chapter 18 verse 21 then Peter came to Jesus and asked Lord how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me up to seven times Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And with some implication that he's like, yeah, don't count. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servants fell on his knees Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. "'You wicked servant,' he said. "'I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you?' In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed." This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. In in the mix of a story about choking and torture and debt and all of these different things, what might Jesus be saying to us? Let us pray. Uh, Jesus, as we open up this emotional issue, there's a whole bunch of people uh, that that might be wounded by this. God, would you speak to us for those of us that need... um, Affliction, would you afflict us? Would you move us on in our journey? For those of us that need comfort, would you comfort us? Would you speak to your people in this community? So, we're in a series on the Lord's Prayer, sort of closing it off this week. And really, where we started was this. This whole language about prayer, this whole conversation about prayer in these things called the Gospels, these biographies of Jesus' life, start with some disciples, some followers of Jesus that come to him and say, Lord, teach us how to pray. These are people that grew up in a religious culture. They are used to prayer, but something that they have seen in the way Jesus prays seems Different to the way they have prayed. And so essentially, you might phrase their question as show us something that works. How is it, Jesus, that when you pray, it seems like a conversation, it seems like a relationship. When we pray, it it seems like it has this different vibe to it. And and so their request is really we want to do this like you're doing it. We want this kind of interaction. This is this moment where he teaches on prayer. And it's very traditionally what a Jewish rabbi would do in the first century. Uh, They would teach their students how to do the things that they did. This is how many steps I take on a certain holy day. This is how I teach people, the kind of stories I use. And yes, of course, this is the language I use when I talk to God. And Jesus' structure is pretty simple. There is one opening. You and I are invited to pray, Father, We're invited to bring that sense of relationship into a conversation, into prayer. And then these three like giant clauses, this idea that God is holy, separate, distant, big, vast, and yet he's interested in this world and he's bringing some kind of kingdom. There's maybe this suspicion there that, that in the universe, the only place where God's will isn't done is on earth that everywhere else it is, and that one day that will change, that you and I, in fact, when we follow the prayer, get to play a part in that. Your kingdom come and your will be done. And then we move to these petitions. And it's almost like somewhere, the language is you're gonna be a part of this kingdom. If you're gonna be a part of that, you're going to need some stuff. Just in everyday life, you're going to need some supplies. You're going to need daily bread, which we get to ask for. You're going to need forgiveness, and you're going to need protection from evil. There's the the moment of, like, where we begin asking for stuff. Now, if most of us are honest, that's probably the place we start, When I have a conversation with God, quite often I have a list of stuff that I need. Maybe it's the health of someone I love. Maybe I'm short of finances for something. Maybe I feel like my relationship with God is a little broken. I quite often start in that language of please give me what I need, and yet that's not where Jesus starts. Is it important? Yes. Is it the whole thing? No. Jesus walks us through this kind of way of praying. Uh, Ethan, who taught us last week, said that there's a temporal nature to these petitions. It talks about the, the past, our need for forgiveness. It talks about the present, our need for supplies, for daily bread, and it talks about the future, our need for God to deliver us in whatever happens. And that's definitely there. And yet somehow Jesus, in this incredible way, also brings all of that into this like continual now. He's like, I'll journey with you, I'll be with you, we'll be connected together, and I'll constantly be doing these things, I'll constantly be providing, constantly be forgiving, constantly be delivering. It's yes, past, it's yes, present, it's yes, future, but it's also like in this wonderful, ever-present now. Jesus' language on prayer is essentially language of relationship. You are invited in to a relationship that is conversational, and that is good news. Uh, But then we get to some of the tougher parts, because a couple of weeks ago, we just took one half of this verse, forgive us our debts. It's language that we, again, maybe used to. We maybe have this sense that there's parts of us that aren't up for show, that we're, we're careful about who we reveal them to. This is a quote from Shakespeare's Macbeth, stars, hide your fires, let not light see my black and deep desires. It's this reflection that somewhere in the core of most of us, there's parts that we're like, yeah, I don't know if I want people to know that or see that. Someone said the most important conversation is the conversation that we have with God, maybe in the morning, maybe in the evening. But someone else said, maybe that's not the most important conversation. Maybe the most important conversation is the one we have with ourselves right before that, where we decide, am I going to be honest In that conversation with God. Do I really think these black and deep desires that I can keep them undercover or am I going to come to that saying you know what I'm going to open that up God you know but you also need me to know that you know that there's a conversation there that reveals some of the inner workings which is important and yet it doesn't stop there. Very inconveniently, I would say, Jesus takes this idea of forgiveness from debt and he very much uses that language of debt even though it's clear he's talking about something beyond just money. He takes that and then he says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus takes the language of how we might be forgiven by God and then says it's related to, maybe even correlated to, are you willing to forgive those around you and occasionally we see pictures of forgiveness in the world that are compelling we, we love these stories this is a picture of the brother of a bosom I'm blanking on his last name but he he was shot by a police officer in his apartment and during the court case when the police officer was found guilty he, he asked the judge could I come out from behind the witness stand and could I give the convict a hug I want to tell her that I don't wish evil on her. I want to tell her that I don't even think she should go to jail. I want her to be forgiven. There's something about that picture that when we see it, we are compelled by it. We're like, that is an act beyond what I'm used to by human beings. But while we might be compelled by it when we see it, each of us would probably own, in the moments where we feel hurt, where we feel abused, it is very difficult. For us to get to that point, it's not as easy when we're in that situation. And yet, Jesus will say, as he unpacks his prayer, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins somewhere there is a correlation. Out of all the things that Jesus chose to go back and emphasize, he didn't go back and emphasize the need for daily bread. He didn't even go back and emphasize God's kingdom and how big and large it is. He went back and emphasized, oh, by the way, when I related how God might forgive you with how you might forgive others, I wasn't misspeaking, it wasn't an accident. I'm gonna go back and emphasize. No, that, that was real, pay attention somewhere the two go together and again I find that deeply inconvenient my my question and I have many about this whole text is is why why should they be connected that doesn't seem fair I've got a couple of phrases that I'll just throw up for you that are that are maybe famous well-known cliches or quotes the one is this time heals all wounds is that true maybe physical ones, and I'm only talking maybe, but certainly when we're talking about like the wounds that people can do to you internally, I don't think time heals all wounds. I actually think time makes them worse. I think with, with the right contemplation, with the, with the right focus, it can actually get harder. I, I think the years pass and, and I can get more resentful. I don't think time heals all wounds. And then how about this one? To err is human, to forgive divine. Alexander Pope, if forgiveness is divine, why do I have to get involved in it? Why should I have to forgive? Why should I have to let stuff go? I, 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 I'm not forgiving. I, I'm notably resentful. I, I carry things very deeply. And somewhere we learn, right, very early on, what it is to resent certain Things we, we know early on that there's this, like, there's this sense of people hurt us. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. Why link forgiveness from God with forgiveness for others? We know what it is to be hurt. And we know when people have done us wrong. I have this memory from back about five years old. We were out for a nice walk, all our family together. And, and we find our way down to a stream. And my brother's about 14 months younger than me and, and were paddling away in the stream. And, and I remember he took his pants off to paddle the better. Um, and, I, and I think I did the same thing because it just, it just made sense. And then he started dangling his pants in the water and I thought that's an odd decision, but again, you've got you to be your own person. And then he took his underpants off as well to again, continue to paddle. And then there was this glorious moment where the stream caught hold of them and I watched as they disappeared down the stream, like just flowing away. And I remember thinking as an older brother, this is gonna be awesome. Um, this is like, this sucker is gonna look so silly. And I'm the big brother and it's gonna be great. And then I remember this moment a little bit later on where I turned around and watched my parents putting him into a perfectly dry pair of pants and having this terrible realization, those are mine, those those are my pants. (laughs) And again, like the, the conversation that flowed between me and my parents was essentially, he doesn't have any clothes. What do you want us to do? He's wearing your clothes. And I was made to walk back to the car for a mile and a half in just my underwear. And, and just by some kind of mischance, there were all these like, cool young couples hanging out by cars as we walked past them. And I, feel, I remember feeling deeply humiliated and deeply angry. And I remember articulating something like, I will never forgive them for this. And then eventually I got to like 30 and I finally let it go. But it took, like it took a while. There there is this struggle with forgiveness. And again, like I think sometimes we as followers of Jesus can just take it for granted that that's a good thing to do. And maybe we have to step back a little bit and say, why? Because I think we wouldn't be the only ones that ask that question. I think Peter at the start of this text Is really asking something like that. Jesus has said, forgive. He's talked about divine forgiveness and then said, on some level, that's related to forgiveness of human beings as well. And I think somewhere Peter has a question about that. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Peter wants to know, how do I know when it's enough? How do I know when the game is over? How do I know when I've won or at least when they've lost? For those of you that grew up playing Pong, which is some of you, I know some of you are that age, bracket, I I played it on the re-release. This is this game that is very simple. It just, this little dot goes off the screen and it just boop, boop boop and eventually like it gets past one of the little guys and paddles or whatever they're called those little things on the side those lines and eventually that means you've scored a point and and it's a very clear system there is a scoring that we are very aware of and somewhere Peter's question is how do I know when it's over how do I know when they've hurt me enough how do I know when I can just stop playing this game how do I know when to just call it and say I'm done is it seven times Jesus? And here's the interesting thing. Peter treats forgiveness or understands forgiveness as a transactional, transactional equation. What's the limit? When do I know that it's enough? And he probably thinks he's being really generous. General Jewish understanding at the time was that you could forgive or be expected to forgive up to three times. Three times was the maximum. And it comes from this really weird place in the Old Testament. In Amos chapter one, there's this kind of cryptic passage that says, This is what the Lord says For three sins of Gaza, this city, even for four, I will not relent because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortress. The understanding was if if God doesn't forgive four times, why should we? Three's the maximum, three is when we're done. And Jesus' response is, I tell you not seven times Peter, but 77 times. Peter comes to Jesus expecting like an at it boy, expecting like, Peter, you've always been the good disciple. I'm so proud of you. Most people would say three, and you said seven. Aren't you a star? You're top of the class, all of those different things. You're my favorite, always have been. And yet he doesn't get that. Peter comes with an equation, an equation that he thinks is just and fair, and Jesus takes mathematics out of forgiveness Jesus takes mathematics out of forgiveness he says that's not how this works now whenever we talk about something like forgiveness I just think it's really important to talk about what we're not saying because sometimes the language that we can hear is well Jesus said you have to forgive and therefore you have to pretend that there's not something wrong so so this kind of passage can be used for people in an abusive situation to say you have to stay in that situation and that's not what Jesus is saying. You could never go back to being in business with that person. You could never invite them back into the house again. You could. There's plenty of consequences to broken relationships that this may not just give a simple answer to. Jesus isn't saying pretend everything is fine. He's not saying stand up in court and say they didn't do some of the things that they did. That isn't what the conversation is here. The conversation here is about our approach and our attitude to that person. Somewhere, I would suspect, in Jesus' conversation in this passage, he's about to lead us through this story he's about to invite us into, he's saying, this is primarily for you. If you have that posture of, of hatred, of unforgiveness, eventually that's damaging to you, and I want more for you than that. So, someone once said that the unforgiveness was like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. It, it was this moment of, like, I, I'm gonna show you because you've hurt me, and it just doesn't work like that. And Jesus, in trying to help Peter understand the mathematics of forgiveness, he leads him into, as he so often does, a story in the Hebrew tradition, a marshal, this story that's supposed to grasp you and make you work for it, and then it gives you some kind of takeaway from it. The fascinating thing about parables is so often they mirror parts of everyday life. And someone once said, you can't pick which parable you happen to be living at the moment. Some of them may make sense to you, but you can pick who you want to be in that parable. Because usually there's an illustration that pushes you in one direction or another. And in this parable that Jesus will give us, there's all of these different characters that come in. There is a Basileus, a king, who is sometimes called Lord or Curious. And then there's this process that he leads everyone through called Sinari Logon. It's a, a settling of accounts. We're gonna make everything add up. We're going to do what some of you do at the end of the month. We're going to take a checkbook and balance it with what the account looks like. We're going to figure out who owes what to whom. And we understand that right because we at heart, I think, learn early on, we're all accountants. We know how our relationships stack up with other people. We have this system, even if it's just in the back of our minds, where we say, I know when you did something wrong to me and I know when I did something wrong to you and somewhere in the back of our minds we have a sense of where we stand maybe it's the relationship with a spouse oh you didn't do the dishes that time and I had to do them Oh, yeah, but there was that time when you went on vacation and, and, and I wasn't allowed to come or had to stay home with the kids. The- <laughs> There's, there's these ways that like the things, they add up and we have somewhere in the back of our minds like, no, this is, this is where the relationship with, it could be with a spouse, it could be with an employer. No, I worked overtime and I didn't get properly compensated. There's all of these different ways. We have some kind of registry of where we stand. I have a friend who's a great businessman and he told me to manipulate this situation. He, I'd done him a favor and... And I said to him, you know, it was, it was a pleasure to do that. And he said, I just want to say thank you. I'm like, no, really, it was nothing. And he said, why would you ever say that? Why would you say it was nothing? It was something. It took your time and it took your energy. It cost you something. So next time someone says to you, uh, thank you for doing that, just say, oh, I know you do the same for me. I know you do the same for me. Suddenly then they are the ones that owe you a favor. And I'm like, I don't really want to live like that. That sounds miserable. But for, for most of us, even if we're not that sort of overt about it there is a sense of where we stack up where we are and then also where we are with God maybe as well and of course this one if we're honest has far less of the good marbles oh I did that oh seven times I can forgive seven times all of those different things it's far less of those and then far more of these we're like oh man that thing that really can stack up we have this sense of, huh, maybe you grew up in a, a form of religion that said you got to do some good stuff to outweigh the bad stuff. Fill that thing with as many of the clear marbles that are positive because then that outweighs the blue marbles that are negative. Maybe, maybe we have that sense of how we relate to other people. We also have that sense of how we relate to God. And this king is about to settle his accounts and it's clear in Jesus' mind that the king reflects God. God is settling his accounts in this story with his servants perhaps and this other character that comes in is is called a doulos a bond servant he has no ownership rights he simply serves the king and he has other servants around him that he will interact with so this servant you might say is really the centerpiece of the narrative that we're about to explore how he reacts is or how he acts is how jesus wants us to or what jesus wants us to learn and then there's this weird little technical term. There is this conversation about a talenton or a talent, a weight of about 75 pounds. This is used as a unit of money or to describe a debt. 75 pounds imagine that a considerable weight and 175 pound talent probably of silver was worth about 1.4 million dollars in today's terms so think about owing someone a talent you would owe them about 16 17 years of work to to pay back that debt. This is some of the language that will become important as we investigate this. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. This king is a wise king. He wants things to be right. He wants things to be fair. He wants to keep close accounts. And so he calls the servants in to, to say, let's make sure that we're clear on who owes what to whom as he began the settlement a man who owed him 10,000 talents or bags of gold was brought to him this language is intentionally nonsensical it's ridiculous 10,000 was the highest number that the Greek system allowed you to count up to so it's like today in today's culture you might say something like yeah it's infinity plus one no 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 it's infinity plus two it's like the, the highest number you can get to it's unimaginable debt it's not that they they wanted to limit it. It's like, there's nowhere else to go. This is as high as you can get. And now we're told this man has to repay 10,000 talents of, of gold. Is this debt repayable? It's not repayable. It's, it's an absurd Amount of money. There is no way a servant should be able to owe this amount of money, and yet he does. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. In this story, it seems that this this king is interested in justice. This king knows what is right. This king knows who owes him what, and he knows what to do when they fail to repay the debt. And this is the closest. We can get to justice will that ever repay the debt no but it will keep working towards it there's this fascinating story about this banker during the the financial crisis in 2007 who through bad investments got himself into a whole bunch of trouble and was eventually thrown into jail he was put in jail for three years and then told when he came out he had to take a job and start paying off the debt which was six billion dollars Can this man get a job, other than maybe banking, uh, that that can pay $6 billion? No, it doesn't exist, and he has to pay it back. Apparently, if you own the bank, you just get the government to give you money, and that covers it. But but if you work at the bank, you can get a $6 billion debt, and this, this man got landed with that. And now he's in that situation, like, when I'm out of jail, I will work for the rest of my life and get nowhere in terms of repaying it. This is where this servant is. There are no options left for him other than the one that he takes. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. We ask, can this servant repay the debt? Now we can ask, does he believe he can pay back the debt? Does the king believe that he can pay back the debt? He's begging for more time. And is time really what he needs? Essentially, the language behind this macrothumio is, is be patient, be big-hearted, be generous and long-serving. Don't give up on me. Let me keep pursuing paying this and somehow I'll find a way. I'll find a way to make this balance out. Somewhere I can add enough of the clear marbles that the blue ones won't matter anymore. Somehow we can get back to neutral. Let me keep working and eventually we'll be good. That's the language or the request of the servant. Be generous enough to let me keep pursuing this. Be generous enough to let me keep paying the $6 billion debt off bit by bit. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt and let him go canceled the debt and let him go. What has the king done in this story? Has the king said, no, eventually this will will make sense. This will add up on the accounting charts. Is the transaction closed? Yes, but is it closed in the typical way of we got back to zero? No, no. Essentially, what the king has done is is this. He said, we had a system for keeping track of what you owe. I'm going to stop using that system and find a different system. I'm not going to count anymore. I'm not going to register the debt. I'm not going to make you tick it off bit by bit. I'm not going to be big-hearted in the sense of giving you years to figure this out. I'm just going to stop. I'm just going to let it go. I'm just going to write it off. Has this servant or will this servant be transformed by these events? What is the reaction of a servant who comes in expecting to be told, no, you will work the rest of your life, your wife and kids will spend time, they'll be sold off to somebody else. What is the reaction to a man who comes expecting at best more time to pay a debt he can never repay and is now told, no, 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 we're just closing this. Don't think about adding clear marbles to the blue marbles. Just let it go. What what will this man's reaction be? But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. It is a debt. It's three months salary, something like that. It's it's not unsubstantial, but, but it's not what he owed it's it's still there though it's still justice it's still right that that language there of he found one of his fellow servants is this word word horisco it's it's not just he came across him it's not he walked out from meeting with the king and he's like oh yeah by the way you I, I didn't expect to see you but you owe me some kind of money it's he went searching for him he went knocking door to door where is the guy that owes me this money this servant has this incredible thing done for him, but in actual fact, he's not changed at all by that process. He grabbed him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And in Jesus' beautiful symmetry, the language that is used is exactly the same as is used between the king and this servant. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Can this servant pay back what he owes absolutely can this servant bring it back to neutral can he look at the accounting and say man there's there's two of the blue things in there but but now I can add some and and we can get it back to fair this servant can bring the narrative back to health this servant has the potential to to bring the story to its normal conclusion that that we're back to zero And yet this servant is not, the first servant is not willing to give him the time to do that. He is completely unchanged by what he has experienced, by the generosity that he has experienced. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. What? are those other servants there's almost like this picture of like there's like the servants discussing there and then there's, there's like a chorus of servants like five or six of them standing off to a side what what has captured their outrage is it that the second servant doesn't owe something to the first servant and, and they're like no you got your accounts wrong they are fully aware of the debt there is a debt that is owed that is not unimportant what they are outraged by is this the first servant is treated in a way that has nothing to do with what he owes the first servant is treated by the king with nothing but grace and goodness the first servant has this experience where the king says to him we're not counting anymore I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to eat that debt. I'm going to handle it. I'm going to take care of it. I will suffer the loss for it. And the second servant he wants to keep this system in play with everybody who isn't him. He's quite happy for the king to write off the debt. He's quite happy for that to be a thing, but he's like no with everybody else, I'm still figuring out where we stand. I'm still judging like where the situation is. I'm still checking the balance sheets. What captures the outrage of the servants is that, that on one hand he's willing to accept this from the king and he's not willing to offer it to anybody else. In case like we're unclear on this, for those of you that are familiar with the word gospel, Jesus is essentially talking about that thing there. He's talking about a king who, who has people owe him stuff and says, no, we're going to play by a different system now. We're not playing by the system of have you done enough good things to match the bad things. We're not playing by a system of lots of years to pay back the debt. We're moving into a new system that simply says, we just stopped with this. We just got rid of it. We don't do that anymore. There's a better way to do this now. What the servants find outrageous is the fact that the man is, has experienced that and he still wants to do this with everybody Else, then the master called the servants in. You servant in, you wicked servant. He said, "I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you?" And then we're told, in his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Is this about physical? Torture. We've read these different pieces of language about like choking, and we've read this thing about like he's been now been tortured by the jailers. Possibly, yes, but let's also say this: there's something else going on there when it talks about torture. There's some level to which Jesus seems to be saying to continue to operate here is not good or healthy for you. This servant, this first center servant that is interacting with everybody, he's continuing to operate a system that is destroying him and he doesn't know it yet. He's invited into a better way and he says, no, I, I can't live that with everybody else. He doesn't see the beauty of this new system that is being offered. And then Jesus, we go back to the end of the Lord's Prayer. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Is Jesus saying that to be forgiven, you have to do forgiveness first? That doesn't seem to be what he's saying at all. He seems to be saying the two are correlated to the degree of you can pick which system you want to work under, but you have to pick. You can pick the system of debt. You can pick the system of what you owe and to whom you owe it. You can count constantly who owes me and who do I owe stuff to, or you can not. But you can't have this new system with God and continue to operate the old system with everybody else. You're either all in on counting or you're completely out on counting. And it seems like in Jesus' language, it's like, you have to decide. Which do you want? Which do you want? It seems like somewhere th- there's this idea that forgiveness leads to life and unforgiveness, somewhere it leads to death. Somewhere that way of living just isn't good for us. I once got to work with this wonderful lady who I loved very deeply, really cared for her, but she was just, she was so bound by all of the things that had been done to her and I sat with her regularly as she sat with her arms on a wheelchair and she'd been stuck in this wheelchair for about five years now and she recounted over and over again all of the things that had been done to her and some of them were terrible and yet what I watched is as she sat there she would sit and she would grasp on the end of the chair And there was this slow transformation as I watched as these hands that grasped and just wrestled with everything that had happened slowly began to take that shape permanently. There was some physical change that was beginning to take shape as she relived everything that had happened to her, as she counted all of the ways that in her mind the things were in her favor and everybody else had been in the wrong. I watched as this system of counting destroyed who she was. There is a way of living that we are invited into, and it's this thing of grace and goodness and forgiveness. And there is this old way of living that we sometimes try and maintain, and it is poisonous and damaging and deadly. Jesus says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Jesus, we wanna make this transactional. But Jesus insists in the end, it is relational. It's relational. This good news of the gospel is about bringing healing to relationships. Again, does that mean that everything goes back to normal? Does that mean that, again, they move back into the house? Does that mean that you start the business up again after they destroyed it? It doesn't necessarily mean any of those things... Seems like what Jesus demands is some kind of heart transformation. It seems like what he demands is that we see just how good his new system is and just how generous it has been to us. And somewhere that is transformative. Somewhere that captures our heart and says, I can't live any other way but this now. Somewhere that says, I can't operate the old system anymore. I have to Bring this goodness into every relationship. The writer Henry Nouwen said this, community is learning to forgive and to be forgiven. Now we might look at those and say one is easier than the other, but the truth is they are both difficult. They're both difficult. To accept your need for forgiveness from another is difficult. To learn to forgive another is difficult. Difficult. And what I'm not saying and what I don't think Jesus is saying is that you should hear this, I should hear this and say, right, it's done, I turned off the tap, I have no resentment anymore, I'm just, everything is good. This stuff may go back years and it may take years to bring to some kind of sort of end or reconciliation or something like that and yet what Jesus seems to say to us is we have to start the journey somewhere. We can't keep doing it this way. Somewhere, I would suggest that each of us has this need, not just for a transaction to be closed, not to just be told, oh no, it doesn't matter, but somewhere what we long for is restored relationships. Somewhere what we long for is that sense of someone saying to us, no, you are forgiven, you are forgivable. You are loved. A few years ago, uh, my family had a friend that we made that we invited back to the house every Sunday. He would come to the morning service, didn't really have anywhere to go. And so we would come stay, get lunch with us. And then afterwards, we would, we would take him to the evening service and then he'd make his way home. Uh, and Alex had had a ton of hard stuff in his life, had been a drug addict for a while, but really found like a home with our family and wanted to learn the guitar. So my brother lent him a guitar to play. And he took the guitar, had it for a few weeks, and then he just disappeared. Just didn't see him again. And unfortunately, he found his way back into some of the old lifestyle stuff. And then years later, we got a call, or I got a call. And it was Alex on the phone just saying, like, after all of this story, he'd come back to a place of health. We'd written off the debt. The transaction was closed. Were we going knocking door to door trying to find this guitar that my brother had lent him? Was he a little salty about his lost guitar? Yes, but he had a couple of others. He could get over it. We had written off what was owed. And I would suspect Alex knew we'd written off what was owed. But somewhere what constantly played at his heart was the broken relationship. Somewhere what constantly played on him was, I need something to be restored here if that is possible and after we talked for maybe 10-15 minutes he just kind of paused and he said is your brother around I said he's not here at the moment it's like I just I just need to tell him how sorry I am I need to tell him how much I value your family and how much I care, how much you cared for me and and what I did was wrong and it just still it just feels bad somewhere what he was looking for was more than just a transaction that was closed He was looking for some kind of forgiveness that was deeply personal, that was deeply relational. Jesus takes forgiveness and he makes it personal. This is Jesus on the cross. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And my objection to what he says is, but they do know. They do know. They're in the middle of it right now and they're, they're, they're throwing dice for clothing. Like how can you say forgive and they don't know? And it seems like they do. And yet Jesus in the midst of the most egregious of all sins can stand there and with no sense of sorrow for these, in these soldiers, no sense of what we might call repentance, says, no, forgiveness is still the journey that I'm taking. I still refuse in this lowest moment to play the old system of counting of accounting. I'm going to play this better, I'm going to use this better system even in that moment. We are invited into this possibility of forgiveness. It's deeply personal when God offers it to us and it's deeply personal when we offer it to others. Jesus looks at this whole way that the world is operating and says, there's definitely, there's definitely a better way to do this. And part of the beauty is how compelling that is when we, when we get to the core of it. The writer Malcolm Gladwell said this, after wandering for many years, he wrote a book called David and Goliath where he interviewed people who'd been in the worst situations. And in interviewing a couple that had lost a child in deeply distressing situations, said they saw them offer forgiveness. He saw them offer forgiveness. And he, he looked at their response and said, there is no way that is possible without God. That is not possible just by human nature. There is something else in play here. Perhaps the first step for each of us, when we think about what it might require for us to offer forgiveness, maybe the first step is to recognize we have been deeply forgiven. We have been deeply forgiven, even when we aren't aware of it. And then maybe the second step is this. It's not to say everything's okay, Not to say that everything's fixed, but it's maybe to say that maybe our sense of justice isn't perfectly in tune with reality. Maybe it's to say, I don't get to have the vengeance. I don't get to operate justice. Somewhere what we say is this, I choose to let God decide that, I choose to not count anymore. I choose to let that old system die and I choose to operate in this new system that Jesus has for us that says the dead is done, and there's a possibility that the relationship is restored. Let's pray. Jesus, as we wrestle with forgiveness, some of us might stir up some stuff from decades ago. We might have that picture of the person, the place, the time in life that just, man, it still hurts. And what we don't have to do is say that it doesn't matter. It does matter. But we get to look at what you offer us, the possibility that our old system of counting how we stand with you is now changed. And we get to be transformed by that. And we get to say that the goodness I have received, I choose to pass on to others. Thank you for being present with us in this. Amen. If God is working your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.